Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Petrolhead Podcast. I'm Kyle Mayer. I'm Chaz Logue. And this podcast is brought to you by Petrolhead Cafe, a soon-to-be-launching bar and restaurant concept coming to the area of Hartford, Connecticut. For the first time in a long time on this episode, we have a guest that's going to be joining us, um, hopefully in a few minutes, for an interview. Um, but first, we want to get uh, up to speed, no pun intended, on uh, what Chaz has been up to in his uh, race weekend uh with HC Autosport uh, in Summit Point, West Virginia. Yeah, no, so it was a, it was a, uh, it was an exciting weekend for sure. Um, you know, I got into West Virginia on Thursday night and um, got to the track on Friday morning. Met with the team. Um, they were already there. They had the car unloaded. I started sending. I know I texted you some pictures when I got there to, mm-hmm. to show you the car and everything. It was really cool to see it. Ferdinand, by the way, is the car's name. Car <laughs> Ferdinand. Name. Um, that was one of the first questions I asked is what's nice. her name? They said it's a he. Its name is oh. Ferdinand. I said, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to misgender your vehicle. <laughs> um, and uh, uh, yeah, so. Um, <laughs> <laughs> His name is Ferdinand. Uh, he, his, him. <laughs> what if they yeah. told you that? <laughs> they, um, so the car was uh, the car was awesome. Um, it was a really well-built BMW E46, right? And um, it was like, I'm just looking at the car, I was solid. Like you get in and it felt like a pro race car. I really had that like feeling of mm. kind of when I go to see races and I look inside the cars or when I went to FCP Euro and I got to peek inside the the AMG and I was like, wow, this is a pro race car. That's what it felt like. I mean, it had a whole board of switches right in the center there that were all labeled different things. And they had little paint dots either above or below the switch. So I knew what position it had to be in when driving. So I didn't have to sit there and try to read the small print at a hundred something miles an hour. Um, Then there was a spot for a screen. So they had like almost like an iPad that was like installed um, to the right of the steering wheel that gave me a lot of like lap timing information and stuff like that. And then there was another thing on the left um, that was a, uh, I guess, a flagger radio thing. So the flaggers, when they go to throw a yellow, they also flip a switch. And it'll let me know. I get a warning saying there's a yellow flag coming up. So you don't even, if if you miss the flagger or something like that, it lets you know there's a yellow. Now with AER, um, their flagging rules are a little different than SCCA in some other areas. Mm-hmm. Uh, with AER, you need to stop racing at the site of a yellow, right? So SCCA, you could technically race up to the yellow, mm-hmm. right? You just can't pass beyond the yellow. Mm-hmm. With um, with AER, as soon as you see a yellow, you can't you can't you know initiate a pass. For example, mm-hmm. you need to slow down and stop racing. And then um, unlike SCCA, once you've passed the next clean station you can continue racing with aer they actually display a waving green flag at mm-hmm. the next clean station so you pass a yellow and you know you go by the incident and then you can't start racing until you see a waving green flag at the next station and then you can start racing okay. um so those are the rules there but anyway so so the the flagger system would tell me stuff like that and then if there was a pace car and i was the leader it would you know display you're the leader so it yeah. knows that that don't pass the pace car or the pace car is trying to catch you. Right. Yeah. And things like that. Um, so yeah, anyway, so that's, that's a little bit about what the inside of the car looked like. And, uh, you know, there's a, you know, a ton of data and, and stuff like that, that we had access to and, and whatnot. And the car was wired with all sorts of sem- sensors, right. For, from engine temperature, 
um, to tire temperatures, to all sorts of things that was broadcasted to the um, the engineer who was sitting at, in the pit lane with all of her computers and everything mm-hmm. set up. Um, so she could see a ton of data about you know tire temps, engine temps, all sorts of things. She could radio to say, hey, this is happening, drive cooler or something like that, you know, cool down the car or whatever. Right. She needs. Um, so I met the team. The team was really impressive. Um, I got to say, like, they were just for a team that's only been doing this for a couple of years. They were just so professional. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're all they were all like uh, graduates with, um, you know, like race suspension degrees, if you will. Mm-hmm. So like one of them was the suspension expert. Right. So he knew how to set up the suspension and all this stuff. And the other was more aerodynamics. And then there's somebody about the engine. So everybody had their own specialty. And mm-hmm. so I met the team. And we got the car, um, you know, all buttoned up and ready to go. And the team owner took the car out for the first few laps to do a shakedown and also mm-hmm. to see the guy because he hadn't driven the track. Um, or actually, I think he might have. I don't remember. But he, so he goes out and, you know, seven eighths of a lap in comes back in mm-hmm. um, because the car was leaking oil. And actually, somebody started screaming, the car's on fire. The car's on fire to us. Yeah similar to what we had uh, when you and I were flagging, the car was leaking oil and then caught the ground underneath it on fire. We looked under, we didn't see any fire. So if there was one, it, it must've gone out quickly. And the fire truck came flying over to our station. We're like, no, it's, it's fine. We're fine. Um, so it turned out it was a rear main seal leak, which means dropping the uh, drive shaft, dropping the transmission and everything else that's in the way. Um, so that was about a four hour job. Practice was only about four hours, which meant I missed all of practice. Mm. And as you know, I've never driven the track, never driven the car, never driven it with AER, never driven with this team or any of the other drivers on track. So I was really looking forward to having some practice time. In. Yeah. Uh, but that didn't happen. Uh, so they, but the team was, it was, this is what really kind of sold me on the team too, is, is they came in, they said, okay, it looks like the rear main seal is leaking. We need to replace it. And then they didn't say a word. They all just jumped on their in like what their parts are, and they just started working on the car. It was such no pun intended, just a well-oiled machine. Just yeah. seeing like everybody, like you know, one person grabbed the jack, the other person was you know loosening the the wheels, you know, the other person got underneath and started you know working on one thing, and somebody was under working on another thing. Somebody ran over and brought like a cool like a a fan to blow on them, and then a couple people brought an awning to cover them up because it was 95 degrees out. Mm-hmm. and it was just like just so well done um mm. meanwhile i'm sitting in my air-conditioned rental just watching them <laughs> sweating while <laughs> they're working on the car and i got to meet some of the other drivers who were who were joining us um and then then they fixed the car and it was lunchtime so we had lunch and then the next thing was qualifying so they said okay every lap you do will count as a qualifying lap so go out there and put down some good times now the weird thing with um aer and this is something that they're kind of debating whether or not they should change, et cetera. The weird thing with AER is the qualifying. So you go out and you they monitor all your all your laps and they take your fastest lap to determine your qualifying. They also take that lap to determine your classing. Mm. So what you run into is you run into people who want to sandbag. If they're on the cusp of am I a class yeah. two or three right they want to go slower so that they get in a slow class but what happens is when that happens then during the race if your pace is a lot faster during the race they'll actually mm-hmm. bump you up a class right so there's four classes the, the, sometimes they run five but there was only 29 cars so they ran four mm-hmm. so we had one two three four and five and that's the order from slowest or excuse me one two three four that's the order from slowest to fastest group four is the fastest 
Mm-hmm. Um, so I went down and I just, I laid some decent laps, not my fastest. Mm-hmm. Um, again, I didn't really know the track, so I only had really five laps to get used to the car and to get used to the track. And then during that, I set a time. Um, and it was actually the team's fastest time um, during, during those laps. So, um, so I was pretty, I was pretty proud of that. And that put us on podium position for class two. So what you're saying is that you are faster than everybody and you, you put it on pole. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Nice. Yep. I was faster than, uh, than everyone on the team, which made me feel, feel pretty cool. Um, considering again, I hadn't driven the car or the track and, and, yeah, in, my really. mind, and in my mind, I wasn't driving very fast. I was, you know, taking it easy. Right. Um, and then he came in and started talking about, you know, they, they asked me, how's the car? And they, they had a chart with all the corners and they said, you know, walk me through every corner. What are you feeling? Right. So it was things like, okay, well, you know, the, uh, the car doesn't rotate well in one of these corners. And I get a lot of understeer on corner exit of the fast corners. And I get a lot of understeer on turn in for the slow corners. Right. So like, mm-hmm. okay, okay, okay. And then they did a bunch of stuff to the car. Right. Mm-hmm. So they, they added a front splitter and they said, this should get rid of the understeer issues on your exit. And they tightened the rear sway bar. And they said, this should help you with rotation at the slower corner. When I drove the car the next day, it was the best setup car I've ever driven. Wow. The car was just every corner I was on, all four, like all four corners had like the perfect slip angle. Everything was perfect. The car did exactly what I wanted to. A couple of times I got a little loose, um, you know, in some of the higher speed corners. When they added that front splitter, it gave me a little bit more oversteer tendencies in some of the higher speed corners. But it was completely manageable and predictable. Mm-hmm. um but you know a little scary <laughs> yeah. um but uh no it was it was great and um yeah so best setup car i've ever driven um it was uh you know they took all the feedback and they fixed what needed to be fixed and even like you know after the first day i gave uh you know some feedback that the car had a little bit of a bounce in it in some corners and mm-hmm. yeah, they were able to fix the uh something on the the struts or whatever to to help that um uh, yeah. So and and just you know, <laughs> they were talking way over my head when they were explaining to me what they were doing with the suspension. They were like, oh well, because blah blah blah, and then the squat, and then blah blah blah. And I'm like, all right, this is a little, <laughs> little beyond what I know, but I'm glad that you know it. <laughs> um. So anyway, yeah. So it was uh, it was a lot of fun. So that's all the good stuff. Um. Now come Saturday was the race. Hold on, I have a question. What 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 was the gearbox? Oh, gearbox was. So it was interesting that the shifter was weird. I don't know if you saw in any of the pictures, but it was um, it kind of always like you shifted and then it like let go and it kind of always returned to center. Mm-hmm. Like you would put it into gear and then the shifter would just go to center. So you'd kind of, you know, it didn't really stay like that. It was just always in the same spot. So I don't know why it's like that. Huh. Maybe it's just so you always grab the same spot, but it was like a straight up and down like silver stick. Um, but no, it shifted really well. The clutch felt great. Clutch felt like my old Beamer. Um, and, um, you know, everything, everything was great on it. Um, it was a little like the car, just the way, I don't know if it was a cam issue or what, but I mean, this is true of most race cars. It doesn't like slow speeds, right? right? So, like it, it, it tends to stall out really easily. Yeah, I, yeah. I mean, I, I didn't stall it, but it was really like, you had to give it a lot of juice just to get okay. it rolling. Yeah, um, that's true with a lot of race cars. Um, right. You know, you always see people like these pro drivers stalling like old Porsches or something because you know you just have to give it so much you know tenderness just to get it rolling. Right. Right. But um, yeah, no, the gearbox felt great in the car. Engine felt great. Engine felt strong. Clutch felt strong. Um, but apparently it wasn't, and I'll get to that. <laughs> Foreshadow. Um, but yeah, so no, so Saturday 
was the race day. Um, and I was scheduled to be, I think, the fourth driver to go. Um, third or fourth driver. So, yeah, so we had, um, so it was started by Ben. And, um, oh, I forgot to tell you. So we had another driver join us on Saturday who um, is actually kind of a pro driver. Um, he, you know, he's, he's, there's a bunch of articles about him and, and other things and some races he's done and whatnot. Um, so actually I kind of Googled him and, and started reading up. He built this like crazy M2, um, BMW M2. So you can like see it. And he's, he basically builds BMW race cars as a, a full-time job. Um, and his brother was a pilot who flew them uh, in a little airplane to the race. Um, so that was kind of cool. Um, so, you know, I, the pilot side of me was talking to his brother and, and just a cool couple of guys, but, um, uh, but he was wicked fast. He was much faster than me by, uh, by almost a second. It was like 0.9 seconds was his fastest lap compared to mine. Mm -hmm. Um, so he was, uh, he was just wicked quick with the car. And so anyway, I, uh, I, it, it was about 90, 95 degrees out all day. And, you know, we're battling cicadas and other things, but it was hot out there. And the driver before me was really comfortable with the track. He's from the area um, and comfortable in the car. Uh, he had done AER before. Um, I was a second faster than him per lap, but that's okay. And <laughs> just throwing that out there. No, but... A um, little humble brag there. A little Sorry. humble brag, yeah. Um, <laughs> no, because I, I went in there being really intimidated at everyone's experience. So I was happy to see that, um, you know, I was the, the, I guess, the second or third fastest. Yeah, so so Saturday, um, the 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 driver before me was probably in his late fifties, if I had to guess, maybe early sixties. Mm -hmm. um, and he was in the car, and like I said, it was hot, and his cool suit wasn't working. Um, so for those of you who don't know what a cool suit is, a cool suit is a uh, basically a tight T-shirt that you wear under your race suit, and it's got veins of tubes that run through it, and then uh, tubes will hang out of the bottom of the shirt and you stick that out through your race suit and that plugs into a cooler of ice water um, that has a pump and that pumps through it pumps ice water through the veins of the shirt to keep you very very cool so when it works it's a magical thing mm. so his wasn't working um and he also didn't have a water bottle because um, there's there was a spot in the roll cage where you can put a water bottle and like my helmet has a built-in water tube yep. so it hooks up to the side of the helmet and then the tube you know goes into my mouth mm -hmm. um so he didn't have water because he had the cool suit, but the cool suit wasn't working. So about 30 minutes into an hour and a half stint, he's like, I'm done. I got to come in. So he just uh, so he came in, which which then the team told me because I was going in next. They said, you need to um, you need to extend the stint. So um, I was like, OK, so do you, do you want me to drive conservatively to, to save fuel? They said, yes. I said, OK. So I went out there and um, I drove at probably nine to nine and a half tenths of what I thought mm -hmm. I could do. There was yeah. probably another four or five tenths of a second I could have picked up a, a lap. Um, like, I know exactly where it was. I was kind of braking early. I was going to, to gas a little later than I could and um, still maintaining good pace. So I went out in fifth place and I came back um, in second. Nice. Uh, which was, so I, I gained three spots. Uh, I lapped a bunch of cars as well. And I put us, I think, first in class, first or second in class. I don't remember. That was second overall, but I think we were first in class when I came in. Uh, I could be wrong on that, but I think that's where we were. Um, there was a, a Nissan 370Z that ended up winning that was just just way far in front of us. Mm. Uh, but he wasn't in our class, so it didn't really matter for us. Okay. Um, we weren't we weren't trying to race him. Okay. Um, but yeah, so it was uh, 
so that now I'm out there. They hook up my cool suit and I go out. So we come in for the driver change. The car comes flying into pits and we have to AER requires a minimum of five stops that are at least three minutes long. OK, so this is to prevent people from putting expensive fuel cells and other things in to really extend the mileage of the car to give you a big advantage. They don't they don't want people to have that kind of advantage. So they require five fuel stops at three minutes each. The three minutes start when you when you cross. Um, there's like a sensors and a pit entry. When you cross it, it reads a tag on your helmet that they put on an RFID tag. Yep. So they know uh, which who's in the car and who's driving. And then it reads it off the car so they know what the car is. Um so as soon as we pass that, it starts a timer and it sends a text message to everybody in the team with a live timer. So you can see what your live time is. So at about two minutes, 40 seconds or two minutes, 50 seconds or so, they release me and it gives me 10 seconds to get to the end of pit lane to get out there. But anyway, so the car comes rolling in and then everybody jumps on their job. We have a refueler. We have somebody taking tire temps and pressures. Uh, we have somebody with a fire extinguisher standing by to watch the, the fueler. Um, the driver going in will help the driver coming out, get out. And the driver coming out will help the driver going in, get in. Um, then there's also somebody who washes the cicadas off the window. Um, and, uh, somebody who refuels the, uh, refills the, the cool suit. Okay. So all that's done in about three minutes. Um, and, uh, so, you know, so we did that. So then it's like, go, 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 go. And they had the little, you know, the lollipop, the little sticker, yeah, the little yeah, sticker yeah. The thing that says, you know, you know, ox on or whatever. It says all the switches you need to hit. And then they flip it over and it's like, go, go, go. So then I peel out of pit lane. Um, and now I'm, you know, I'm in the car and it's my first time driving it, you know, with the, the new splitter set up and the other thing. So I'm just getting used to the car in the first couple laps. Um, and then I'm setting some fast times. I'm setting, yeah. um, you know, some, some, what I think are pretty good times. And then I got caught behind a Mustang, um, for a while. And the Mustang had about a hundred more horsepower, I think something like that. Mm. So, I was all over him in the straights. The car was very tail happy. He was drifting every corner and I was all over him in the corners. I mean, um, just trying to get around him, but passing right. at some in the corners is very tough. And then on the straights, he would just <clears throat> disappear. And then right. next breaking zone, I was right on him again because yeah. this car had amazing brakes. We can brake super deep. Mm. Um, so I was battling this Mustang for probably four or five laps and I got around him and then he would pass me on the straight and then I yeah. would sneak uh, around him and I pat, and then he'd pass me on the straight. And I think what he realized is that we are faster apart than we are together. We're much slower when we're driving together yeah, because right. he we're both taking, he's taking a defensive line going into the corner. So it's slowing him down. And then um, I'm taking a, an offensive line. So it's slowing me down. Right. And, uh, but he knew that I was going to be faster. Uh, once, yeah. once I can clear one straight without him catching me, I was going to be faster. And so he ended up um, pulling to the side and letting me pass. And he was in a different class, too. He was actually in a oh, faster yeah. class than us. So we okay. weren't technically racing each other. We yeah. were just hurting each other by doing by being there. Yeah. So so he pulled off. He let me pass. And then once I cleared the first straight without him on me, I never saw him again. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I was able to lose him and because and, I just, you know, <laughs> except for two corners, I was, you know, or, or two straights. Other than the two straights, I was I was faster everywhere um, than that car. Yeah. Uh, so once I, I passed him, and then I, I went on and passed a bunch of other cars. So uh, I was really happy with my performance overall. The issue was my cool suit wasn't working. So I'm supposed to extend my stint to an hour 40, an hour 45. I'm about 40 minutes in. I'm panting <laughs> like a dog. I'm because <sighs> it's 95 outside. It's probably 110 in the co- in the cockpit. Ugh. 
and you know we were live broadcasting but then all the equipment overheated so none of it got um, to that's why that's why it shut off when you yeah, were I was wondering yeah watch yeah so um so that sucked but uh, so i'm sitting there i'm panting right i got a tight t-shirt on that's not doing anything for me other than keeping me extra hot I've got a full fire suit on that's triple thick. I've got a balaclava on. I've got a neck device called the Hans on. I've got a helmet on. I've got gloves on. I've got race socks on and race shoes on. So I'm, you know, I'm suited up. And I'm literally every straight just panting like a dog, just so hot. And I'm trying, and you know, there's window nets. There's a net that goes down yeah. the center of the car, and there's a net on the, on the window. And I'm sticking my little hand, like, out the driver's side window net to yeah. try to funnel air as I'm shifting and doing oh, this run straight just trying to get a little bit of air in my face um and then you know the team i told the team i like a lot of conversation for these because it yeah. kind of keeps me alert and keeps me yeah awake. yeah exactly um we're like one of the other drivers he doesn't like being talked to um so you know they're they're quiet when he's in the car but they talk to me a lot and um so i you know i i'm telling them i was like guys i there's no way i can do an hour 45 like i can't believe i'm or you know i've done this far and they're like, okay, well, how far do you think you could stretch it? And I kind of had a second win. So I was like, well, you know, let me keep going. I'll let you know. Um, but just know it's not going to be the full time. So, you know, re-strategize basically on your pit stops. Um, so I'm going, I'm going, I'm going. And like literally like turn one and two is kind of this long right-hand sweeper. It's They call it two separate corners. It's really just one. Mm-hmm. And so I'm heavy on the brakes down the front straight and I turn in and I literally just let my head rest on the window net. Cause it was like a little bit of a break. Cause I'm doing this long right-hand corner. So all the G forces are pulling to the yeah. left and I'm just like, I like, I literally caught myself just sitting there with my head, like on a pillow, just resting on the net yeah. as I'm going around this corner. Cause I just had zero energy and I, my, my reaction time started slowing down. Like at one point I went around the corner and the car got really sideways, like way more than I should have let it. Cause I was just slow to, to, to catch, to catch the car. I didn't go off or, or crash or anything, but, um, you know, it was it was uncomfortable for me because I, I knew that I should have been a lot faster in catching that. And I was just my mind was slowing down and I started making errors and um, and I was making like shift errors, like I was forgetting to shift and stuff like that. Yeah. So I knew my mind was just drifting. And right. um, so I radioed to them. I said, hey, guys, this is uh, I got to come in. And I was coming up on some lap traffic that were battling each other for like mm-hmm. class two and class one. Yeah. So I knew it was going to slow me down anyway, trying to get around them. So, you know, I radio, I said, now is probably a good time for me to come in. So they're like, okay, do two more laps. And, um, uh, you know, that'll give us enough time to get everybody ready. So I did two more laps. It's about a minute 25 every lap. Um, and then I came in and when I came in, I got out of the car. You know, they, they helped me out of the car. As soon as I got out, I literally collapsed. Like I didn't pass out, but my body just gave out. Like yeah. I was awake, but I couldn't stand up. I like fell to the ground. And I kind of like pull myself up on the side of the car so I can buckle in the the, the next driver that's getting yeah. in. So I buckle him in. I set up his, I plug in his radios. I plug in his cool suit. I just get everything going as quick as I can. And then I close the door and I'm like weak. And somebody like helped me over the pit, the pit wall. Yeah. Cause like I said, I was just, I was like falling down and they ripped my helmet off of me. And the lady um, that was there said that I was like purple. They said my face was purple. Oh yeah. Yeah. Um, they took like a bin and they put ice water in it as I'm taking my shoes off and they put my feet in my hands in ice water and they put an ice towel like around my neck. I took my my suit off. So I was like shirtless there. And then they put like a, a cold towel around my body and around my head. And then I just started chugging Gatorades. It took about so I had crazy heat exhaustion that actually led to a lot of nausea yeah. later in the day. I was really nauseous that night. And, and for like the second half of Sunday, I was really nauseous. Mm-hmm. Um 
but yeah, so, but it was, you know, like again, credit to the team. They saw that there was an issue and they jumped on it and, and they, they helped me out. Uh, so then the next driver is out and something happened and the car just shut off. Mm. And uh, we just lost full electrical seven hours, 15 minutes into an eight hour race. And the car just turned off and had to get towed in. So the team that night took apart the wiring harness mm. and tested every single wire. Like all the way through like 1 or 2 a.m. I was long asleep. Wow. <laughs> and I get a text. Um, you know, I read the text in the morning um, saying, hey, we found the issue. It was a tire temp sensor that looks like some piece of debris or something off the track hit this tire temp sensor. And it was enough to short out the whole system. Wow. So it was like a freak accident. Um, so we didn't finish the race, but that was still because we were so far ahead and not doing the last 45 minutes. We still ended in sixth place. Um, Overall or in class? in class and we were ninth overall out of 29 cars nice so still in the top 10 uh so yeah. we still got points for that race excellent uh, which was nice and then sunday rolled around um the car was all fixed back on track um first driver went out start the race um about 30 minutes in they got a, a they started having a slow leak in the front left that got worse so they came in we swapped out a tire for an unscheduled pit stop and sent the same driver right back out um then he's about an hour 25 into it so i'm all suited up i have my helmet on my hans device i'm ready to come in and my uncle was actually watching the race on the live stream and he texts me and he says i think your clutch is slipping Hmm. and about five seconds later our driver radios in and he got and he says guys i think my clutch is slipping (laughs) (laughs) it was funny that my uncle was able to hear that in the motor the yeah. clutch was slipping and then so he radios in the clutches the clutch is slipping so they said okay try to cool it down so he drove it for a couple more laps and he's like guys the car's undrivable i it's the clutch is totally fried so again i was all suited up ready to go now we have to bring the car in and replace the clutch again about a three hour job three four hour job so i took a nap again i was feeling kind of nauseous so wasn't totally upset that i didn't have to that i didn't have to jump in a car and drive when i was nauseous like that um so i sat in my ac took a nap and uh, they woke me up and said, hey, cars were going to be ready to go in 20 minutes. So, you know, drink some water, suited up, uh, got in the car, fired it up, couldn't get it in reverse, couldn't get in any gear. Um, so I was like, all right, I can't get into gear. So then they realized that as they put it together, uh, one of the guys who was putting something together, he didn't know if a piece went one way or if it was like flipped over and it was the other way. He wasn't sure. So he put it in because, again, they were kind of like pressed on time. Yeah. And it ended up being the wrong way. So it prevented the shift linkage from. Um, so now it's like, OK, well, this is going to take another four hours to fix because you drop the training and all this stuff. So it's like, well, we don't have time. So the race was was over an hour and a half roughly into it. Mm. So I never even got to drive it all the second day. Yeah. Which was really disappointing, but uh, um, you know, it it, it happens. Yeah. Happens more. Oh, I feel like it happens more often than not <laughs> with endurance racing. So yeah. Uh, yeah, the team and I went out for dinner and, and drinks afterwards. Um, you know, great group of people. Can't wait to drive for them again. Uh, but hopefully, you know, things go smoother. Yeah, 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 for sure. Um, did you get the? I mean, did you ever get the cool shirt issues figured out? Like what, how, yeah. how could that, like, what could go wrong with that? I'm, I'm curious. So the cool shirt I had was a different brand and we looked at the connectors and they looked almost identical, but I guess there was something that wasn't quite identical. So okay. it wasn't, it wasn't able to make a, a, a connection well enough to, um, to open the, the valve on the tube. Okay. So no, no, uh, water was able to get in. Um, so yeah. 
so I think it was just a, um, a mixed match of brands. That was the issue. So the second day, I'd actually borrowed the driver because one driver was only driving one day because he had to work on Sunday. Okay. Um, and he lived about an hour away. So I was like, all right, well, can I borrow your shirt? We're about the same size and I'll just drop your shirt off after the race. So, you know, he was nice enough to agree to do that. Um, yeah. Considering, you know, letting somebody sweat in your shirt like that. Yeah. Um, but uh, so the second day I like wore his. So when I got in the car after they had fixed the clutch, I hooked it up and I felt the, the cool tubes. I was like, oh, <laughs> this is nice. It was literally like just like spooning with like uh, a freezy pack it just felt so good and um i was like oh yeah i can definitely do an hour and a half with this feeling regardless of how hot it is it just keeps you so cool yeah Um, but unfortunately i didn't get actually tested out all the way yeah is it just uh, a cool shirt is it just the front or does it have veins in the back as well the back as well okay yeah Yeah, that that's good they make a cool like balaclava too so it'll go through like your head yeah um but you know i don't have anything like that and they also, what they did is overnight too on Saturday night, because overheating was such an issue, is they MacGyvered this tube that came out of the, kind of near the uh, mirror of the passenger side. Yeah. And blew air, and they had it blowing over the electronics, and then also into the face of the driver. Yeah. Um, and the first driver went out without a cool suit uh, in the hour and a half, and he's like, oh, this is so much better. He's like, it's blowing right in my face. It's keeping me cool. Yeah. Oh, good. Um, you know, it's not a, not an open cockpit car, so your face is. Well, I guess even in an open cockpit, you have a. You would have your windshield down and your um, you know, visor down. So. Okay. But yeah, that's so that's my story. Okay. Um. Yeah. I um. I I tune yeah I tuned in for the live feed a little bit on Saturday, but then it then it caught off cut off abruptly. Um. Unfortunately, and then Sunday I wasn't I didn't uh catch it in time before the car had to retire um but yeah i i did try to track things on that app um but oh so it, it wasn't race monitor it was race hero they, there's two oh, different oh okay yeah sorry and i could i could have told you that because i found that out on saturday um actually i think it was friday because uh, i was trying to pull time to race monitor and they're like oh aer doesn't use race monitor they use race hero or something so okay the brand yeah so i i never heard of that app i had to download it mm-hmm yeah, because I was I, I searched for AER on Race Monitor and it wasn't there. I was like, oh man, like oh well. But I mean, I think Race Monitor you have to pay for a lot of those. It's like it's it's really cheap. I think it's like it's like a subscription of like two dollars a month or something like that. But it was still kind of annoying. Even if AER was on Race Monitor, it was it was probably would have been like a a pay to to see the the timing things, which would have been annoying. But whatever. Yeah. Yeah, I have a subscription to them, so it's because uh, I need it usually for every uh, <laughs> every um, PCA race. I use yeah. that, but yeah. Okay, so yeah, you would definitely uh, race with them again. Oh, absolutely, yeah. And they, um, you know, because I um, because I didn't get the drive the second day at all, they they offered me like a um, you know a credit, or actually they offered me a refund, and I I said just apply it to a credit because I'm definitely coming back and driving with you guys. Yeah, for um, sure. So for for my cost. Yeah. Um, did did they race uh close to where you're gonna be in Florida or at least a reasonable distance away? Yeah, they do all the AER races, so they go down to the Charlotte Roval a lot. Okay. Um, that's that's probably the closest. I'm gonna probably have to fly to wherever it is anyway, which is fine because I don't need it in my car. Um. So you know, they invited me to New Jersey, which I think is a night race, so that would be kind of cool. I've never done oh, yeah. at night. Um. And uh, they're doing VIR. I think is the next one they're doing. Um, 
what else is there? Uh, yeah, there's there's a few tracks they do. They do New York Safety Track, I think, uh, or Pit Race. They do for I know I know for sure they do Pit Race. They do Watkins Glen. That was the race they had right before it was Watkins Glen. Okay. Um, so it's those are the regions that roughly they go to. I don't know if they do Mid Ohio. I think so. All right, everyone. So at this time, I'd like to welcome Simon Kirkby. He's the director of the Lime Rock Drivers Club, and he's going to be joining us tonight to talk a little bit about his previous experience, um, you know, and, and also his experience going on with Lime Rock. So welcome, Simon. Uh, it's good to be here. Uh, yeah, I'm looking forward to uh, having this chat. Excellent. Um, so I want to, what I want to do first is I want to learn a little bit about kind of where you started, like how you got into motorsports, how you come down the path that you've been on. Um, so I don't know if you want to take us through, you know, the story of Simon. Well, uh, it's funny. I mean, I, I, not uncommon, uh, particularly back in the, uh, old days, uh, that I was born on a farm. Um, Lots of opportunity to drive tractors. Uh, I bought my first go-kart when I was like 10. Uh, it was a 250cc three-speed shifter with a, a Villiers motorcycle engine on, on it. Um, <laughs> I think I bought it for five pounds and wow. I bought it from, I bought it from a, a guy that owned a pub and I drove it the six or seven miles home on the, on the road. <laughs> nice. <laughs> um, so, yeah, and we had, like on the farm, we had 30 miles of, of road around the farm, uh, a lot of it dirt. Um, later in life, it was paved. So I, I got to practice a lot. And so uh, I just liked to drive fast. Um, by the time I was 14, I was a, uh, a super chase jockey, um, making good money. And uh, But I really really liked um the cars and uh more than racing horses and i decided to do that at some point fairly young uh i i the first thing i bought was a rally car and my first rally was in 1966 oh awesome what'd you buy uh, i had a Lotus cortina oh nice followed by a ford escort and then i had several rally cars after that as well but you know rally cars are you just take them out and beat them to death. So the thing that led me down the path to driving race cars was uh, it was a financial decision, quite frankly. Yeah. All right. So you left the the jockey life behind. You got into rally car driving. Um, you're still over over in Eng- um, uh, England at this time, right? Yep. Yep. Okay. Yeah. Um, so then, where did you go from there? Well, I made my first big mistake in racing. I bought myself a, a, a full-on um, British uh, saloon car championship, as it was called in those days, uh, Ford Escort, which basically had a Formula 2 um, uh, two-liter motor in it that was 325 horsepower. So I went from being uh, spending a lot of money on rallying to spending even more money on racing. <laughs> <laughs> at that point, I, I decided there, there were several, uh, sedan championships in, in Britain and I just decided to go group one racing. So I bought myself a showroom stock, uh, Simca Rally One, uh, which was a Chrysler product out of France, but they sold in Britain. And it was a rear engine, rear wheel drive, uh, very similar to my, 
historic Hillman imp that I have now. And uh, basically, you could literally take it out of the showroom and go racing with it, which I did. And uh, um, I, my first year, I did probably 22 races, and I finished second 22 times to the same guy. (laughs) (laughs) A guy called Ivan Dutton, who you may or may not have heard of, but he and his son uh, are like the premier Bugatti uh, race car prep people in the world. And when, when we had all the Bugattis at Lime Rock a number of years ago, they came over and I hadn't seen Ivan in God knows how many years, but yeah, that was, that was kind of a little weird. Um, uh, and you know, uh, I mean, I think that vehicle probably cost me 900 pounds brand new. Um, and I didn't literally didn't do anything to it. I drove it to the racetrack. Um, ran it as it came out of the showroom. I would put a open exhaust on it, race it, put close exhaust on it, and drive it home at night. And of course, you know, I wasn't just wasn't quite competitive because I didn't know about these things called shock absorbers and springs and blueprinting and all the rest of it. Um, uh, but I got invited by Chrysler to run it in something called the uh, Avon Motor Magazine Tour of Britain. Um, as a factory car, and they took the car away from me and did work their magic on it, gave it back to me. And my first race in this two day event, which was two days and one night, and it was uh, six or seven races and rally stages in between. My first event, uh, I beat Ivan Dutton for the first time in my life. <laughs> oh, that's great. <laughs> so, uh, then I started to realize the, um, you know, the, uh, <laughs> the value of preparation. <laughs> yeah. Mm. Yeah. yeah. That was the start. All right. What, awesome. um, Go ahead. Uh, uh, what part of England, uh, did you grow up in and, and, and spend the majority of your time there? So I grew up in North Lincolnshire, which is a farming community. There is absolutely no reason for a, tourists to go there for any reason whatsoever um so uh but to the south of us was lincoln and to the north of us was york and our nearest racetrack was cadwell park which is basically a two mile plus version of lime rock with um even uh bigger elevation changes yeah and the um, famous famous jump there uh yeah the mountain and mm. It not only do you get air there, but when you get air, you're sort of in the middle of a right-hand turn. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> it's kind of interesting. So you, you've obviously seen the the bikes racing. Oh yeah, the- yeah, the British superbikes. That's that's the best. I always, I, I do. I it's it's funny that you you say that it's like a kind of a larger, longer version of Lime Rock because I I think that would i think if lime rock and i and i want to touch on this a little bit later but um if lime rock were able to ever host um you know the 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 moto america kind of professional level motorcycle racing i think the effect would be similar to uh cadwell park um you know and and that lime rock could provide uh some uh some uh airborne motorcycles oh no question about it and um and those boys would be up for it too Mm-hmm. Um, crazy guys that they are. Um, actually, uh, was the monkey on a sidecar once at, 
um, Cadwell Park, and that's something that wow. I will never do again. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> but, yeah, great racetrack. Um, loved it. And, and actually, it was the first uh, race that I ever saw um, that I ever went to was at Cadwell Park, and they actually had... Uh, a Formula 3 race on, and, and you know, people like uh, Ronnie Peterson, Rennie uh, Vissel, um, Emerson Fittipaldi, and that was at this, like, little backwater racetrack. I was like, oh, my God, that is, like, I could never do that. That is so stunning, you know. Uh, and it was, it, yeah, that's, um, that's what got me turned on. Yeah, so. My first uh, single-seater race at, at Cadwell Park was actually in a air-cooled Formula Super V. So um, I uh, I had a my godfather um, uncle. Uh, he he came and watched me a few times racing in the in the Simca. And uh, great guy that he was, he went out <laughs> and bought um, uh, a super. Uh, I mean, uh, he bought a factory called Supernova Tui. Um, and which was building Super Visa at that time. And, uh, well, the first thing is he, he brought out a, I can't remember who it was, but some famous race car driver to watch me racing the Simcoe. And the guy said, Oh yeah, I think he, he'll be okay. He'll be okay. So my godfather bought this factory and installed me as the, the number two factory driver because they already had a factory driver. And that, that was how I got started in single seaters. Yeah. Oh wow. So, <laughs> yeah. Um, Another lesson learned, my first race in that Supernova 2E Super V car was at Cadwell Park, and I took my teammate and myself out on the first lap when we were in first and second place. Oh, no. Oh, oh yeah. <laughs> do, you, do you remember what happened? Uh, tried to out break. Well, uh, Carl sounds like he knows the track, so when you go away from the start and you go up over the hill and then you go onto the back straight away and you go down into the dirt, and then you come out of the dip and you go up the hill and there's a right-hander after that. And uh, there's a, it's really bumpy going in there. So if you get your braking slightly wrong, you're in trouble. And I got my braking wrong and just um, locked up and took him out. Right. Doesn't always then, go well. <laughs> <laughs> so then at some point you moved into Continentals and Formula 3, right? No, actually, in between, I got an invite from uh, the factory Alfa Romeo team that were running in the British Touring Car Championship and to go to a driver test and uh, they were uh, at the end of the day they offered me a job um, so I drove for them for just one year in the British Touring Car Championship and then I drove for Chrysler for a year in the British Touring Car Championship as well so um, then I uh, decided that I wanted to go I really did want to go single seater racing, having had the experience in the Super V. So, uh, I, Richard Dutton, uh, who is Fortec Racing these days, you guys may or may not know who that is, but they're one of the biggest outfits in Europe. They run in just about every championship, uh, below Formula One. Um, and it was called Richard Dutton Racing in those days. He, um, he was local to me. He was out of Lincolnshire, uh, small, market town called Grantham and uh, he uh, you know he'd sort of been keeping an eye on me 
hoping to gain another customer, I guess. And um, it was a semi-worked team for Reynard. And, uh, you know, I was, I'd been farming, um, I was farming about 1500 acres. Uh, I made the real commitment, which not everybody does. I sold everything at about a million pounds in the bank. I got divorced, gave half of it to my wife and went racing with the rest of it till I ran out of money. Now you ended up winning the, um, the British Touring Championship, right? I no, I ended up winning the we we won the team prize on the um Avon Motor Tour of Britain. Um I didn't win the championship uh basically well let's let's not get into excuses and all the rest of it. That's <laughs> easy of a trap. Um but anyway, I didn't win the British Touring Car Championship. In those days you could win just by getting the most points running in your class, okay? So you could be in the 1400cc class and, and win overall. Uh, um, and typically the guys that were running in the, in the Camaro, Mustang, you know, whatever class didn't win the championship overall. But no, I did not win the championship. We did win the, uh, Factory team prize on the A1 Motor Tour of Britain, which was which was the event that I referenced earlier, which was a pretty good accomplishment. I mean, we were racing against um, you know uh, James Hunt and Graham Hill and uh, a couple of other Formula One drivers, um, and uh, we we even though we were only running in the up to 1600cc class, and then there was 1600 to 2000 cc and then over 2000 cc we we finished i think seventh eighth and ninth overall the, the three factory cars and 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 won the you know the team prize so we, we, it was it was a good accomplishment um uh it's it the first time i made any decent money out of racing and um we got pretty drunk um at the at the you know the host hotel and the mechanics threw me out of the window and I thought I was going to die until I landed. I mean, this is from three stories up until I landed in the pool down below, but yeah. Jeez. Mm -hmm. <laughs> oh God. <laughs> different days, my friend, different days. <laughs> yeah. We had a, um, we had somebody on, um, a few months ago at this point who, uh, who was really good friends with Aaron and Senna. And he was kind of recounting some of the stories of, of the drunken shenanigans at the hotel rooms and things like that. So, yeah, well, that's <laughs> not too much with Ayrton, but yes, with the people that were racing against him. Yeah. yeah. Oh, that's great. I, um, uh, okay. I mean, I used to belong to a, a club called Tramp in London that was owned by a guy called Johnny Gold. Um, what a name. Uh, yeah. Well, the, the whole club scene in those days was run by the Cray brothers who were, uh, the most, fearsome gangsters that Britain's kind of almost known. They were psychotic. They were unbelievable. Um, and uh, they, well, actually, they, I mean, at one time, having just been arrested and then being freed on, you know, freed because they'd intimidated some witnesses or whatever, and they're on the BBC and they're like, uh, one of them goes like, uh, yeah, well, 
the Queen rules England, but we rule London. And uh, was right, they did. Including, including Bernie Eccleston and everybody else that was in the sport. And, you know, I used to go to this club. I never, I never, I was a teetotaler, never did drugs, but James and all the rest of the guys were in there and, and a lot of the guys that I was racing against. And I was like, okay, I've got you guys tomorrow. Because you're <laughs> definitely high right now. Anyway, different times again. Yeah, well, that's great. Um, okay, so you, so to go back, you said uh, you know you eventually decided that single seaters were where you wanted to be. So how did you move on from there? Um, I finished second in the in the uh, British FF2000 Championship twice. You know, lot, you know, raced against quite a, a lot of people who. Moved on to bigger and better things and beat them. You know, Martin Brundle being one, for example. Um, uh, but, you know, two things against me. I think I was already, even in those days, considered a, a little bit older. Um, uh, didn't have any sponsors. Uh, I did some, a little bit of Formula 3 racing. Um, but we, basically we, we ran out of money, you know. Sad, same story. How many times you heard that? (laughs) So, um, I got invited by a guy called Richard Owen, who was manufacturing a Sports 2000 car called the Shrike, um, to run in the support race for the uh, European Grand Prix, which was the second Grand Prix that was put on at Brands Hatch. The, The British Grand Prix was at Silverstone. The... European Grand Prix was at Brands, and that was a replacement for Spa that got cancelled because it was so dangerous. Um, and, you know, they closed the circuit down. Um, and I finished, finished second in the race, should have won it. Well, I felt I should have won it. Um, and he, he contacted me afterwards and he was like, this is my first Sports 2000 race ever. And he, um, contacted me and he's like, I'm, I'm, uh, exporting race cars to St. Louis. And I'd like you to go over there and drive in the Sports 2000 Pro Series over there and help spell the cars. And I went and the importer uh, was a guy called Scott Livingston um, and uh, worked with him for a number of years. And we started a racing driver school at St. Louis with spec racers. And um, I, I hired Dorsey Schrader to be uh to work with us um i actually hired him as a as our chief mechanic and he was terrible at that um uh, but it was his first full-time job in in racing um and uh you know after two or three years uh there was two partners in in um gateway international racetrack which at that time was just the road course and not the oval and they had a fallout and one of them shot the other one dead. Um, wow. that was the end of the school and we, we, we sold all the spec races and Dorsey went to work for, for Skip and, uh, he calls me up and says, uh, hey, you should come work for Skip. So in 85, I shipped out to, uh, so, well, I mean, the office is in Canaan, but Skip and I lived in the, both of us lived in the, um, uh, Jesus, Iron Master's Motel because none of us had enough money to buy a house or rent a house. So we did a deal with them and 
we, we lived in there for like a year or two years, I guess, um, uh, until we started to make some money. So, yeah, that was the beginning of my relationship with with Skip. Um, started out as an instructor. At some point, he asked me to uh, start trying to sell programs to all the OEMs. And these are programs where we were, um, you know, uh, doing parking lot programs. Well, actually, before that, I had been very instrumental in getting the Skip Barber BMW driving school going. So he knew that I knew logistics and I was like, I'd opened up the West Coast and, and was kind of, uh, not officially, but kind of in charge of the program. Um, when we got that going, he asked me to, to, I say, be, be, become a sales guy. I went to Detroit three, four times a month, every month for 18 years. I went to, uh, LA for twice a month for the, you know, for the same amount of time. And we were very successful in selling, uh, programs to all of the major manufacturers, whether it's, uh, was a consumer program, you know, come to a parking lot drive the car, compare it against other cars, or whether it was, you know, training 24,000 Chrysler uh, guys uh, about the product and how to sell it and everything else. And that is uh, where the, you know, the uh, Dodge sponsorship came out of. And that's how we, you know, we we were able to scale the business enough to to get big sponsors like like Dodge and, and like uh, Michelin as well. So, oh, okay. and that was, and then we got to the point where uh, we we got a big offer, or Skip got a big offer. I had some ownership in the business, um, you know, to sell it, and uh, and we took the offer, <laughs> and here we are today. What year was that the, that it was sold? So 80% of it was sold in um, 1998, okay. and the new owners, it, so it was a leverage buyout. I don't know if you know what that means, but that means that you have a huge mortgage. Um, and they tell you that they, that you have, you know, $10 million, $15 million, $20 million to spend on expanding the business, but you have to make the mortgage. So we went from making money every year to having a mortgage that we had a service of about, I don't know, $5 million or something, whatever it was. Um, and they put some English guy, I forget what his name is, uh, in charge of the business. Um, and his job was to uh, grow it, expand it. Um, and basically, he bankrupted it in one year. Um, uh, and so there was still 20% of it that was left, um, and the the fund that invested it in it, which was a fund that was investing in golf courses and in uh, tennis camps, and you know, and this was kind of a one-off, like the racing school. Um, they decided to offload the racing school, so they sold it to sold it on to somebody else, um, which. Uh, Chaz, you know who they were um, very well, I'm sure. Um, and it was still a, you know, still a, a business that was doing very well. Um, they were able to leave all the debt behind and sort of continue. But gradually, uh, from t- they bought in 2004, 
and from then on they sort of they gradually ran the whole thing into the ground and it went bankrupt a, a year or two years ago so that was the whole sad story <laughs> but okay but is this different than skip barber dri- driving school or racing school because that still exists right yeah but that's just the brand so it we've been through since skip sold it we've been through uh, two two new owners actually three new owners okay i see so the latest guys um seem to be doing a a decent job um uh you know we'll see how it all works out but they seem to have a handle on things and they've got some decent sponsors um and uh hopefully they'll make it you know we we mm-hmm. want to make it um but um yeah i i think being in the uh racing school business is a, is a tough business to be in these days given that you know gi- you know given that you can go and buy a Porsche and drive it home and go and do an SCDA day and it costs you 400 bucks instead of going to a real school um and you know costing you I mean depending on whether you do a two day or a three day or whatever what you do and, and or intro to racing but it's going to be a lot more expensive even though you're not driving your own car but I mean modern cars are so reliable um and so good that you know you can anything that's called a, a performance car these days you can pretty much take it on track and be okay you know so yeah more questions please <laughs> yeah sure I know I have a lot um yeah, so just to, I guess just to finish the the Simon saga here, um, at some point you transitioned to your current role. So how did how did you go from you know selling and traveling across the country to being homesteaded in uh, Alamra? Oh uh, yeah, so um, in 2004 when the new owners took over and you know I didn't have much faith in the uh, capability to run a good business, I left and. Started my own business with Chip Pankai. I don't know whether you know Chip or not. Did, did you know Chip? It rings a bell, but I can't put a face to it. Well, he he, saw, he started the Global Rallycross series in this country um, uh, after we'd split up as partners. But we were partners, and we started up in Detroit. And the first gig we got was. Uh, the, uh, we got the contract to start Formula BMW USA and then we ran it for eight of the nine years and then Bobby Rahal took it over because he was already doing a lot of business with them and he went to, you know, he went and talked to them and, and, and told them he could do it for less money than we were doing it for and so they gave it to him. But we had, we had eight great years of running Formula BMW and, you know, uh, we had so many, Cool guys, cool, good drivers that came through our hands like Rossi and Gutierrez. And, um, I mean, we, we had a former BMW reunion, um, uh, in Monterey like two years ago. And I think we had like 12 current form, uh, IndyCar drivers there and 17 IndyCar drivers, uh, altogether, including Bobby Senior. So, um, Anyway, that all came to an end um, when form, when BMW got out of Formula Racing completely, and uh, 
you know, we could have carried on business there, but and I wasn't enjoying. I was actually commuting to Detroit and back because I had a you know a younger child and I didn't want to like be living in Detroit permanently and not see her. So, um, uh, and then you know Skip said, did I want to come and run the um, Lime Rock Drivers Club and you know uh, on a personal level and everything and hey what you know what what's wrong with i was like okay i can go back to coaching right seat you know i can be <laughs> i mean i'm on the track 120 days a year you know? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> what could you know and, and you're going to pay me to do that yes please <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's great uh yeah kyle why don't you anything you got we kind of go, we'll ping pong this a little bit. Yeah, sure. Um, okay. I mean, uh, so how long have you been the, the director of the driver's club? Since 2009. Okay. Okay. So this is 2000. Okay. So, all right. Um, I, there's really, yeah, I, I don't, what, um, I guess as far as you can tell us, um, what, uh, this is a very broad question. And if you need more specificity, just let me know. But what is, what do you believe and what do you want the future to hold for Lime Rock Park? Um, well, I think Skip has finessed it incredibly well. Um, there's been a lot of offers that, you know, the, the, the park has, uh, been open to offers or Skip because he was a sole owner up until recently. Yeah. Um, for many, many years. Um, you know, you always ask yourself the question. I mean, when we went from having BMW as a sponsor to the school and the track to having Dodge, it was like, well, you know, what does this do for the brand? Uh, it's not quite the same as BMW, but when you look at the money that was involved, it was like, it was a money decision. Yeah. Um, a little different as far as the, the track is concerned because Skits, uh, overriding um, principle in everything that he approached as far as track was concerned is that he had to remain, you know, as a as a racetrack with real races, and that is the brand. We we don't really make any money out of the race weekends. We make money out of money out of renting the track, you know. Uh-huh. Um, um, but. Uh, are you going to rent the track if you don't have those race weekends and, you know, um, keep the brand in place? Not necessarily. Sure. So, um, you know, it, it, and, and as far as the investors were concerned, there were a lot of people that, who frankly, you know, are race car drivers and are in some cases are in the race business. But having seen what happened to, um, Bridgehampton, Skip, and because the the owner there was a was a racer and passionate racer, and it end, ended up selling it to people to develop a you know a, a golf course and and homes and everything else. Uh, he really wanted to feel so. Uh, I don't know the timeline. I don't know how long he's been talking to the new investors, etc. But they are, in my opinion, absolutely the right people because they're all preservationists. You know, Charles Mallory, uh, who's the lead uh, guy, um, 
has done a lot. He, he, he was he was the guy that did uh, Mystic Seaport, for example. Okay. He's the guy that uh, um, has uh, taken a lot of you know old broken down classic hotels and uh, uh, rebuilt them, reinvented them. And um, I'm trying to think what the what the chain is, but the the beautiful hotel that's on the water in Greenwich. Um, anyway, that's that's one of his chains. Another guy that's involved has uh, uh, the the most stunning uh, wooden boat museum up in Vermont. Um, you know, there's there's a lot of guys that have got. Uh, that are involved that have got um, uh, old car and race car museum, uh, uh, private ones um, that are quite frankly unbelievable if you would ever see them. So, mm-hmm. uh, as I say, to reiterate, um, they're preservationists um, and they're going to Lime Rock to preserve it and make it better. Yeah, yeah. On a previous uh, episode, um, Chaz and I did discuss how impressed we were with how things have uh, fell into place with Lime Rock because uh, you know we we talk about it pretty frequently on the podcast and it's obviously something that's kind of you know near and dear to our hearts and something that you know I I personally uh, I really hope thrives because that's probably one of our uh, like cornerstones of motorsport in the state of Connecticut. Um, you know, for all that it does and all that that it it kind of um, you know stands for, I, I guess for lack of a better term. Um, so yeah, I, I'm I don't know a lot about the uh, the the new kind of ownership group, but from what I what I know, and I know that Chaz agrees with me that uh, it's it's very impressive and very um, I'm I'm really glad. Just you know, of of all the sad you know stories of of racetracks. Um, you know, closing down, being converted into some other development that has nothing to do with, with motorsport. Um, it was, it's, it's, it's almost you, I almost expect those things to happen, uh, whenever ownership of a racetrack changes hands. But for this, for this to happen to Lime Rock was, I, I don't, I don't know if I want to go so far as to say it was miraculous, but it was, it's, uh, quite, uh, quite good. I would say Skipper's worked at it for, 50 years and <laughs> finally mm-hmm. got to the right place. But, um, you know, and, uh, I mean, I have 25 new members in, in the Lime Rock Drivers Club. 25 new investors are all members. Um, and Roger Penske is one of the investors. You know, when people say to me, how's this going to work out? And I'm like, Roger's one of the investors. What do you think? Yeah, really. <laughs> so, um, Skip had actually pretty much already done the deal with STP Euro, you know, for the, for the proving grounds or extension of the old autocross course and a brand new clubhouse before the, well, before the investors signed on the dotted line. And it, it's, it's a good enough deal that I think he, you know, he was like, do I really need the other investors? But then it was kind of like, yeah, I need them because again, they're preservationists and, and they're going to make sure that this thing got, keeps going when I'm, when I've left, you know? Right. So, right. Yeah. And it's, I personally, 
I wish it was at least that extra half mile and was another Cadwell Park, but I'm not going to complain too much because every time I go on track and I go on track a lot, I love every minute of it. So what are you mm. going to say? You know? Right. Yeah, it's it's uh, and I say it all the time on this show. That's my favorite track that I've been at. Uh, it's also where I had the most most lap times as well. <laughs> uh, is at that track, but um, yeah, I think it, it honestly it has everything that you want, right? It has you know the decreasing radius. It has the compression going uphill at the apex for the uphill. It's got the well, not the apex, but past the apex. It's got the you know the downhill compression there. Um, yeah. It's got West Bend. I mean, it's got it's got everything. It's got long straights. It's got a left left hander that you can. You know, the, you can take three perfectly good lines through there. You can do mm-hmm. a rim shot. You can do something in the middle. You can be on completely on the inside, and they all work yeah. depending on the skill level. Mm-hmm. So yeah, yeah, all good. Excellent. So um, in your position as as um, you know as the director of the program, I'm assuming there's there's different initiatives to do what you can to entice members to keep them staying and things like that. What, what sort of things are you doing on that front? Um, so our, when Skip started it, we, we were, uh, our major rival was Monticello Motor Club. Mm-hmm. Um, initially people were a little bit uh, wary about Monticello because they had a temporary, you know, clubhouse, which they put up every year and then took down in the winter. It was a tent, basically, but it was an air-conditioned tent, and it was nice. Um, and but what they did have was a lot of money to, you know, be in the buff books, marketing, blah de blah de blah, which we didn't have, and we had literally no marketing money at all. And if we had, and we'd put the foot to the floor at that time, you know, we would have been. Uh, far larger club than we are right now. Um, and as has been proven by the fact that, but, you know, in, in reaction to what they were doing, which was spending a lot of money and bringing members in. And, you know, I don't know what the profitability is like given how much money they are spending. Um, uh, we were on a much smaller scale. And of course, you know, we, we're a multi-purpose, uh, racetrack versus being really just a you know a, a club uh track although they do rent out to oems as well um but you know we've we've gradually grown over the years and we decided that what we needed to do was to offer a a value package rather than be a la carte which is what they are so when you come to the line rock drivers club Pretty much everything that you get, including, you know, instruction, getting on the proving grounds, car control, uh, on the track, doing test and tune on Tuesdays, on muffled, coming to the races, getting tickets, hospitality, etc. That's all included. Uh, you pay your, your initiation fee and then you pay uh, reasonably priced um uh, dues each year and you never have to get checkbook out or anything unless you want to buy some clothing or something. Whereas, you know, Monticello is, is, um, uh, you pay for everything, literally everything. I mean, I believe these days I, I, I could be wrong. So, um, but I think they even charge if, if you're a, a team that's looking after 
you know, a member there, they even charge you a, uh, a, a fee to put your tent up in, in the pit lane. Wow, okay. Mm. So it's a very different model. <laughs> yeah. And correct me if I'm wrong in this, but I thought I saw something that Palmer is looking to do something similar. Is, do you know anything about that? Well, we have a reciprocal with Palmer. We just started this this year. We have a reciprocal with Palmer and a reciprocal with Thompson. Actually, later this month, we have a Palmer versus Lime Rock Drivers Club uh, spec me out a challenge race. So, nice. I, I, you know, we're, we're trying to add value in, in those ways because, you know, I, I mean, I belong to a golf club. Um, it plays different every day depending on the wind and the weather and everything else. But it's nice to be able to go to another club occasionally and, you know, and play. So, yeah. Um, that's, that's what we're trying to do. We have a, uh, reciprocals with various other tracks around the country. Not that I think that any of our members ever go to any of those other tracks, but I mean, Palm Beach International is probably the only one that any, any of our members actually do actually use, you know, in the winter. So, yeah. And, and, you know, uh, Monticello doesn't, I don't think they have any of those, uh, reciprocals. I think their approach is that, hey, if we're going to have our members drive in Florida. We're going to build our own track down there, which I get it. You know, I mean, they do a great job. Um, they got their own business model and they're, they're making it work. So, but we're making ours work too. That's good. Yeah. I, did, I, I saw signs for Palmer. I didn't know that was, uh, that was affiliated with you guys. That's good to know. And, yeah. uh, when you talk about, you know, um, Monticello putting money towards everything, I think I get emails and calls from them, you know, all the time. I don't think they, they realize how much money I make. <laughs> yeah, that we 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 are we get comments all the time that people appreciate that we are you know low key uh, not only in our sales process we're not aggressive at all because um, we we don't want people who at the end of the day really don't want to be there or you know buy a membership and never come because that's you know. Um, that happens. Uh, we, you know, uh, and we're, so we're low key in the sales process and we're also very low key in, I mean, the members, many of whom are super wealthy, but you never hear anybody like talking business not allowed in the clubhouse, quite frankly, you know, mm, yeah. we're not talking business. We're, we're here to enjoy ourselves and, and, you know, not try to, um, be flashy or try to, uh, you know, be be the richest person in the room. <laughs> yeah. Mm. Wow. yeah, it's encouraging to uh, to um, to hear kind of this uh, kind of affiliation or collaboration with with Palmer and Thompson because um, you know regionally those are the three the three uh, tracks of cool. Southern New England and as somebody. Um, who is probably going to spend a good chunk of my, my lifetime kind of, uh, involved in motorsport and provo- promoting motorsport. It's, uh, it's, 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 it's really cool to see other or, or hear about other people who are kind of planting seeds, uh, for the future. Yeah. So, and it's encouraging as well. Um, Chaz, I have, I have two more big questions, I suppose. Um, you know, one of them, yeah. So Simon, um, 
I've noticed, I don't know, um, because I've only lived in Connecticut uh, as an adult for a, a shorter period of time, it seems like Lime Rock is kind of slowly warming up to having motorcycles and motorcyclists a little more involved. Is that is that true? Uh, yeah, um, I mean, the, we, we've tried having motorcycle schools a couple of years ago. That didn't really work out well. But we do have this association with Max BMW that is working out very well. Okay. Um, and but that I mean is it is kind of exclusively BMWs. Mm. So um, it, and 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 the thing about it is um, we have so much demand from you know the PCAs, BMWs, SDDA, um, various other. Tr- track outfits, um, hooked on driving, blah, blah, blah. We, we don't have too many days to give out. You know, mm. what with the club and everything else? It's, right. it's, it's, uh, it's no, um, we, we're short of days. We really are. Mm. Okay. Well, I mean, that's good to know, but I mean, at least there is a possibility of an openness to, at the very, at minimum, at very minimum, you know, maybe, a, maybe one track day, a year for motorcyclists. Um, yeah, the, the 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 single biggest problem with the motorcyclists is putting the appropriate uh, cushioning soft barriers up in front of the hard barriers. You know. Yes. Yeah, they I mean, are back, fencing up. Yeah, back in the old days, they did it with hay bales. Great. Right. You know. Now we have like real stuff. Um, uh, and uh, so getting that in, especially just for like one day or something is is uh, it's expensive actually yeah 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 well i know that i i know that um i mean i don't know exactly how um track days with cars i mean i i I think it's it seems like kind of a mix with cars where a track day might be sponsored by the circuit itself versus a track day that is um kind of a third party uh using the track but I, i i know that for most the vast majority of um of motorcycle track days there is a third party that that will i I guess rent the track and and i know that one that definitely goes to palmer um is called evolve gt track days and they i don't know if i don't know if they have their own air fencing but they they say there's always air fencing at their track days so i don't know if that's just their own and they they set it up and they handle all of that but um i don't know who handles it but there's no way i would ever go to palmer on a motorcycle without having some serious additional fencing in place because there's there's nothing but hard shit to hit you know i know (laughs) yes um (laughs) i know that's uh yeah palmer really kills me because it's such a such a nice uh circuit uh, layout wise, um, and, and elevation wise, but it's just so, like, there's, there's just so much about it that, that would, uh, would make it really, really special and stand out, you know, like, more spec, like spectator se- seating and so forth. If it was actually made to be like a, a big entertainment facility, um, you know, I think it, it, it would really be great. But, yeah, but how, how spectators, I mean, I, don't get me wrong. I mean, I, I love the guys at Palmer. Um, 
and we love the association and everything, but you know, how, how are you ever going to get spectators out to the vantage points around there? It's just, there's no access roads or anything. You know, it's kind of, it's, it's a tough deal. Right. I remember when it was constructed, you know, and I was just kind of scratching my head a little bit like, oh, this is cool, but, but what, are, yeah. what are, yeah, well, what about all these other things that you should really have with a racetrack? You know, you're spending millions of dollars, you know, you ought to, you know, be a little, have some flexibility in recouping your investment. And that might include, you know, having spectators, paying spectators come to, uh, to an event. Um, Racetracks race don't, don't make money out of spectator events. That's, that's, yeah, that makes sense. Um, I mean, you might, you might, uh, at mid Ohio with a IndyCar race. Um, in fact, you might almost anywhere with an IndyCar race, but anything below that, there's no spectators. Yeah. I mean, uh, there, there, there used to be a time when the line to get into Lime Rock was back to Goshen, which is like... Wow. <clears throat> right. Um, but I wouldn't think we have an event at Lime Rock, which, you know, if it's a two-day event, like an IMSA event, I wouldn't think there's more than three, 4,000 spectators. Mm, okay. Seems like a lot. Seems like a lot more. It does. Because in, back in my day, you know, you went like Formula Three racing, and you had one mechanic, no, no engineers, you know, and the team principal. That was it. Now, so it was like two people. Actually, typically they would have like two mechanics look after three cars, and so if it's a six-car team, it's like five people. Now it's five or six people per car. Mm. All of those people are down in the paddock, and it looks like there's a lot of people there. Right, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, I think um, before we kind of continue, I just want to make sure I say, like, I think what's something that's been on my mind with regarding motorcycles and Lime Rock is I think Lime Rock is a great size for – it's a great size for small displacement – motorcycle endurance racing um like i think it would be neat to have some kind of club endurance race um you know four hours six hours something like that at at lime rock where it's just kind of uh you know kind of well if if you know somebody who wants to put that on and bring people and do it you know bring it on okay okay yeah i mean i would uh, I mean, I would certain, I would love to do it. I would love to do an endurance race, you know, get some buddies together, uh, you know, find a bike, tune it up, make sure it's good to go. And, and then, uh, and, and that sort of thing. Um, I did reach out to a, a buddy to, to, to make it work. So just to give you, uh, uh, an understanding. So to rent Lime Rock mm-hmm. and you would have to rent Lime Rock to put an event on like that. Yeah. So if it's open, an open exhaust day, it's $22,000 for the day. Okay. Um, then you got corner workers. Then you got EMS. So it's a big price. Can you get enough people there to cover that? Right, right. It would, yeah, it would kind of depend on the number of teams and the amount of money that each, each rider is, is paying to participate. So, I mean, it's, I, I don't want to, there needs to, uh, it would be more serious than like a, you know, 24 hours of lemons race. But I, I think like the 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 some of the basic uh, logistics, I, I think 
I would look I would look to something like 24 Hours of Lemons um, just to get a sense of 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 how to create a budget and what everybody needs to to pay and kind of gauge the demand and stuff and shape it like that. But I mean, if um, you know, I mean, Limerock, to be very frank with you, really doesn't care what the event is as long as they get their rental. You know, sure, sure. If if somebody can come along and say, hey, I've got a you know, bike group, and I can make it work financially and pay you your rental. Then all good, you know. Right, right. Yeah, fair enough. So, I mean, for if if uh, if Evolve GT track days were to rent Lime Rock, would it just be the rental fee, or would corner workers be needed as well? I'm just curious. No, you ha- you have to have corner. I'm just for the insurance alone. You have to have corner. Uh-huh. Okay, okay. Yeah, see, this is speaking to my ignorance. I don't really know. Yeah, no. You got to have the insurance. You got to pay for the insurance for the day. Uh, you got to have corner workers. You got to have um, EMS. You got to have at least one ambulance uh, mm-hmm. and, a, and two or three uh, EMS personnel. Um, yeah, and that's all. That's all mandated by the insurance. Right. Right. Okay. Um, okay. Any my, my. I guess my last question is um i guess carding on the 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 new proving grounds yep and it's going to yeah oh excellent wow nothing but good news in this interview simon i tell you (laughs) (laughs) yeah we're excited about that and there's there's a, a number of different entities including members from the lime rock drivers club to outside entities to people who provide services to people at race at Lime Rock, they're all interested in doing karting of some kind or another. And, you know, it's, it, how it's, that's going to work out is a big question, but, uh, it's definitely, and, and the track was, the new track was designed specifically with that in mind. Excellent. That's really, that's really good. Um, I know. By the way, we're putting brand new curbing. Because right now the drop off from from the pavement onto the grass is too much, so they're putting new curving all the way around. It's going to be painted, look like FIA, and it's going to be friendly to to go kart. Very nice. Um, That's excellent to hear. Yeah, I I definitely hurt my 240 on a drift day there, kind of dropping a wheel off um, on the transition. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Because I I think um, one of my kind of dreams is to to be part of the the kind of construction and organization of a uh, of a karting track like a, a very high level karting track in 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 hartford itself or in the hartford area at the very least uh something that's like that functions like um what is it o- oakland valley orland valley raceway park uh kind of in upstate yeah, new york that's, uh, that, that's where santino ferrucci comes from if you know who that is oh yeah um, yeah yeah, his dad owned it. Um, and uh, but the the best outdoor karting track in the Northeast is belongs to F1 Boston, and it's not the indoor; it's their outdoor, which is unbelievable. It's really terrific. Really, I didn't know that there there was uh, that that existed. Yeah, it's about twenty minutes away from the indoor. So it's it's out in the country, and they 
they run shifter carts and everything there. It's it's like it it's it's really nice. Really nice. Yeah. Hey guys, I'm gonna my wife is cooking. She just got home. We haven't had anything to eat yet. I'm gonna have to go. I apologize. <laughs> no, this is this is actually a good time and we're we're wrapping this up anyway. Um, yep. so Simon, really appreciate the time. Um, I appreciate you sharing the story, sharing some insights about what's happening at Lime Rock. Um, you know, I think that's that's definitely of interest uh, for a lot of people. So I appreciate the openness on that. No worries. Yes, thank you so much, Simon. This has been a, an excellent uh, conversation, a real treat in my mind, and um, had some things to work out technology-wise, but it's it's been worth the wait for sure. Sure, and uh, nice to meet you, Carl. Okay. Yes. Yeah. Thanks, Simon. Have a good uh, night. I'll be seeing you soon, Chaz. Somewhere. <laughs> yeah, I'm. Uh, I'm. I'm moving out soon, but I'll. I'll eat, he jumped off. <laughs> oh really? Oh, okay. <laughs> Just a little bit. Uh, uh, bye, Simon. All right, everybody. This has been another episode of the Petrol Head Podcast. We hope you enjoyed the wonderful conversation that we had with Simon Kirkby, director of the Lime Rock Drivers Club at Lime Rock Park. I'm Kyle Mayer. We'll catch you next time. I'm Chaz Logue. Speed safely. I gotta get my cats out of here. They're going through my shit. Hey. Okay. <laughs> Fuck out of there. Oh shit. Right. <sighs> it's going through my surf bag I left with the closet open. Oops.